And we believe that the power of Jesus Christ through the truth of the gospel is able to radically transform your lives and introduce you to not only your peace that he has provided for you, but the purpose that he has for you. And we pray that today that some of you will meet that. I want you to join me in the book of Acts in chapter number 13. The book of Acts chapter number 13. As you're turning to Acts 13, let me say this. We'll begin in verse 26 in Acts 13. But um, we are going to have a couple more services this week. Uh, we will be uh, gathering back here, Lord willing, on Wednesday night. And we are just beginning a new series on Wednesday nights from the book of Revelation. We are looking at worship scenes in the book of Revelation. And as a matter of fact, if you maybe were a little overwhelmed this morning with what took place here... I'll put some scripture to it in this series, and you'll see that heaven's worship is animated and loud and lively, as well as at times reverent and quiet, but for the most part, um, it, is, it is very intense when we look in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to be covering for the next five weeks that study called Above All as we examine six different worship scenes from the book of Revelation. And then this coming Friday night, we're going to have the Gwinnett Regionals right here in this room at 7 p.m. This is where Christians and churches from all around Metro Atlanta come for the express purpose of worship and intercession with a heavy emphasis on healing and deliverance. It's not a formal church service with a five-point sermon. It is a time to come together and we soak it in prayer. Then we come together and ask the Holy Spirit to bring the flame and great things happen. There has not been a single Friday night worship, uh, uh, regional worship event that we've had where somebody hasn't been healed. Now, it may not be the, you know, getting up out of a wheelchair yet, but... We have seen people dramatically healed from aches, pains, afflictions, and delivered from literally addictions and oppression. And so we would encourage you, if you got something better to do on Friday, by all means do it. But don't sit at home. Come and be a part of what God is doing here. All right, let's stand to our feet. If you're physically able to do that, join me on your feet. And let's look at the Word of God together. The message today is called Easter's Bottom Line. We have been in the book of Acts for many weeks, and this is also in the series called Ignited, but with a particular emphasis this morning on the resurrection. Paul is speaking in a synagogue on a Sabbath day. He's been asked to give a few words amongst both Jewish unbelievers and also Gentile unbelievers that were invited in to the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia. And so we're picking up halfway through his sermon in verse number 26. Acts 13, 26, Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days... He appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now as witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. There may not be a more succinct and clear presentation of the gospel in the, book in, Act, uh, in the book of Acts than what I've just read aloud to you this morning. Today, I'm not going to do anything fancy. Today, as a matter of fact, I don't know that I'm going to go altogether deep. Today, I have an assignment from the Lord, and that is to joyfully bring forth the simplicity of the gospel for all of us. For the saved, so that the saved may say, I want to give God an extra measure of gratitude as I move forward from this day. I want to remain grateful in the treasures of my salvation, which he has secured for me through the death, the life, death, and resurrection of his son. For those of you that are not yet followers of Jesus, those of you who have never surrendered yourself to the son of God, those that are here among us today who believe in God and may be moral and and, and upstanding citizens, you say to yourself, well, I believe in God, but I'm not sure about the gospel. I am so confident in the gospel that when it is proclaimed in the unction or the touch of the Holy Spirit, that that gospel comes in power to your life. And that today my assignment is to call you to believe on this one named Jesus, holding nothing back and laying everything before him. Regardless of where we are today, I want us to take time and honor on this Easter Sunday the one who was and is and is to come because not all of his promises have been fulfilled. But as the first coming was fulfilled, as his life, death, burial, and resurrection were all prophesied and all perfectly fulfilled, there is yet remaining unfulfilled prophecy that says he will come again to this planet. And so let us be encouraged on this Easter Sunday. I want to give you four points today, and they all have to do with gospel truth. And the first is historical truth. So let's go back into the passage. Look with me in verse number 26 and talk, uh, listen to me talk just a moment on the historical truth that Paul imparts to these people in the synagogue. He says, brothers, and he calls them the sons of the family of Abraham. These were Hebrew people. He says, those among you who fear God, those were not Hebrew people, but Gentiles who were interested. They were God-fearers. He says, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, and now he gets historical. He goes back a few decades and he talks about Jesus' life. He says, because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled those prophecies by condemning Jesus. And though they found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Now, this is the the, the substance of what Good Friday was all about. It is the reality 
that God in his love and in his mercy and in his compassion for sinners like you and I before we came to Jesus Christ, God in that love, mercy, and compassion sent his only son, God the Son, came and was wrapped in human flesh. He was born to the Virgin Mary. When Mary brought him forth, the Bible says in Isaiah 53 that looking upon Jesus physically as an infant, as an adolescent, as an adult, there was nothing beautiful or comely that we should desire him, meaning that Jesus looked average. Jesus was your average-looking Hebrew man. He didn't walk around with a glow in those early days. There was nothing that would offset him from all of the other young people and then men of his day. But he grew up. And at the age of 30, he began to embark upon a ministry sent to him by his heavenly father. He began to proclaim the kingdom of God was at hand. He called people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin. He looked at the religious establishment and what it had become that had massed and in, in some sense prostituted Judaism to become something far from what the heart of God intended. And Jesus came and he exposed the religious hypocrisy. He looked upon the people and he told them that God was not looking to saddle them with religious laws and traditions and mandates and dictums, that God came to set them free, that they might walk in the freedom that only can be provided by the, the life of God himself. And so Jesus in that ministry proclaimed with his lips, but he healed with his hands. He went to the sick and the afflicted and he laid his hands on them and at some occasions spoke to them. And demons and disease and affliction would leave them. He would raise the lame up from the ground. He would bring those that were frenzied in demonic possession and he would deliver them. He would take them, when they, whether they were hemorrhaging blood or foaming at the mouth, he would take them and in an instant he would make them whole. He would cast the devils out of them. Demons out of them were cast out regularly in the earthly life of ministry, and, uh, of Jesus' ministry. And then there were moments where at apex moments on three different occasions, Jesus would raise the dead. He raised a little girl from the dead who had been dead for hours. He had raised a young man from the dead who was literally in the coffin on the way to be buried. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead who had been in the tomb for days and had already begun to decompose. Jesus showed his death over those that were just a little dead, those that had been dead a little longer, and those that were severely dead. And in that beautiful picture, it simply says this, he can meet anybody wherever they are in death and he can touch them and he can reverse it. Ultimately, as he loved the people and taught the people and healed the people, those same people, stirred by the religious leaders of the day, cried out in a mob scene to crucify this one who was the Son of God, and they rejected him. Paul alludes to that. They didn't like the way Jesus came, and so the religious leaders, moved by jealousy, moved by rage, they looked upon Jesus and they said, we've got to do away with this man. The whole world is going after him. And so they kangaroo courted him into a mockery of a trial. And the ultimate charge from the Hebrews was blasphemy. And the ultimate charge from the Romans was insurrection against Caesar. And yet Pilate did not want to have Jesus put to death, found nothing in him to condemn him, tried his human best to get out of it. But ultimately, he bowed to the whims of the people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, give unto us Barabbas. And so the murderer was free, and the Son of God was crucified. Uh, the Bible picks up in the book of Acts, moving from the historical truth into now the essential truth. Look in verse 29. 
The Bible says, when they had carried out all that was written of Jesus, they took him down from the tree, the cross, and they laid him in a tomb. And then I love the standalone verse 30. Here's the gospel. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Now, my friends, I want you to understand something. The gospel is not simply the death of Jesus on the cross. The gospel is incomplete unless we include the resurrection. The cross gave us the ability to have our sins atoned for. The payment had been offered. Yet if Jesus had just died on the cross and not emerged victoriously from the tomb, we would have no hope beyond the grave. It is his resurrection. The resurrection is the amen of the Father to Jesus' statement, it is finished on the cross. And God brings him forth from the tomb and Jesus steps out of the tomb having been physically slain. He died there on the cross. The blood of the lamb, as we sing about this morning, was shed and the payment was made. There's nothing left, by the way, for any of us to add. You cannot help Jesus pay for your sin. In trying to help him pay for your sin, you're actually sinning more. There's nothing you can add. There's nothing that needs to be added. His blood is the only payment and the perfect payment for our sins. Let me pause here. I want you to be baptized, but baptism doesn't pay for your sin. I want you to live a life filled by the Holy Spirit, but any kind of evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that doesn't set you free from your sins. I want you to serve, and I want you to give, and I want you to sacrifice, and I want us to be moral, and I want us to be God-fearing, and I want us to love the Word. But ultimately, those motions apart from the blood of Jesus are nothing but religion. But when the blood of Christ is applied, and your trust is in Him, whether He finds you where He found me, He found me as a man in bondage, 24 years old, lost, aimless, addicted, miserable, suicidal, homicidal, completely darkened in my soul, and he found me and in an instant delivered me, transformed me in a moment of time and delivered me not only from the penalty of my sin, but from all of the plague of my sins. If you're here today and that's your history, I want you to know the same blood that cleansed me will cleanse you. Say, Jeff, I don't have a resume like that, man. You were kind of rotten. You did need a Savior. Well, you're right. I did. But as much as he'll clean you from your sinful filth, he'll also cleanse you from your sinful self-righteousness. Those that do not feel that they need a Savior because they're not near as bad as that old Jeff Lyle used to be. And they say, well, you had some dark stains. I just got a little sinful dust on me. My friend, that dust goes much deeper than you know. And it takes the blood of Jesus, and the good news is, is that the blood cleanses, but his life emerging from the tomb. When you receive him, you don't just receive a pardon of your past, you receive a power for your prospects, for all of your future. You receive it in the present towards the future, and that is the very life that Jesus Christ has. I'm going to give you a couple of things here. Historically, this essential truth, Jesus emerged from the grave. No matter what your professor at a university taught you, 
Jesus died and Jesus rose. The evidence is clear. Even his enemies said, well, we have a problem because the tomb we put him in is now vacant. I love the line of the song we sang. It was borrowed for three days. It's almost like the father looked at Joseph of Arimathea, who, whose tomb he owned that tomb, said, hey, Joe, I need to borrow that tomb, but I promise you we're going to give it back as if nothing ever happened in it. <laughs> Joseph lent it up. Jesus borrowed it for three days, but he didn't intend on staying there. And he came forth. And friends, even the enemies of God knew that the, the body was no longer there. And then the Bible says, it tells us in the book of Acts chapter number 1, that for 40 days, 40 days, more than a month, Jesus moved among the people there in Jerusalem and Galilee. He moved among them. He showed himself alive. Sometimes it was to an individual like Mary Magdalene. Other times an individual like Peter. Then there were smaller groups of the disciples who were gathered together wondering after the resurrection, excuse me, uh, before he appeared to them after the resurrection, wondering what they were going to do. And he comes into the room where no doors were open. He manifests in the middle. But then the Bible goes on to say that for 40 days he went about and he was proclaiming again the same message that he had before he died, which was what? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so he was preaching to them. He could be touched. He could be seen. He could be heard. He ate barbecue fish on the beach with Peter and John. He did that. And the Bible says that in one setting, he appeared to more than 500 people in one setting. My friend, you have to have more faith to not believe in the resurrection than you do to believe in the resurrection. The evidence is clear that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. It's an essential truth. Otherwise, if Jesus did not arise, then friend, we have no better system of belief than do Muslims, or any other group that have their prophet, Buddhist, whatever you want to say, that, that apart from the resurrection, there would be no difference between our religion, just tweaks here and tweaks there. But we are the only one that have a system of belief that is rooted in a Redeemer, a Savior, and a Lord who is still alive. He is alive, friends. It's amazing to me to think of, and it, uh, I, I don't apologize. I get very excited when, when I just think of him. And thinking of him today in worship, that literally, because we think of him by faith, there tends to be a mistiness to the way we think of Jesus. Almost, and I know it's not true, but we, if we're not careful, we can think this way. Almost like he's a, a disembodied spirit moving among us. But friends, let me just tell you this. Jesus Christ the Lord is in that same physical body in glory that he was in when he rose from the tomb, when he ascended from the hillside, when he appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos. It is the same physical body that literally, if he was here today, you wouldn't put your hand right through him, but he has a glorified physical body. The Son of God is still the Son of Man, yet he is glorified in both instances. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember that it is in that same body that he is going to return to planet earth. He said, if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that wherever I am, you can be there with me. And he promised that he would come back to planet earth. And as I look around, I'm getting off topic here for a minute, but I'm just stirred. As I look around on what's going on in the globe right now, 
as I see the convergence that is taking place globally, as I see the, on the grand chessboard, I see the positioning of everything from kings to pawns, and they're all seemingly moving into a position. Friends, that is not coincidental that as these things are coming to pass, we are seeing right before our eyes in this generation that major components of end-time events that are outlined in the book of Revelation are manifesting right now in our generation. Now, I'm not giving you a timeline, but I am saying, when you see the sky, you ought to know that the storm is coming. So we're looking at this. It's no longer do we have the ability as believers to casually meander through the kingdom. For you that are not yet believers... I say to you with love, but I say it with urgency. You don't have time to delay and defer or deny that the clock on your soul is ticking and there must come a moment where you release yourself in submission and humility and honest confession as a sinner to the Savior who said he will not destroy you, but he will forgive you and embrace you and free you for all of eternity. But he's waiting on you to make that decision. Nobody can make it for you. These essential truths must come to bear as we're living out our days. Jesus proclaimed his coming kingdom. He ascended bodily off of a hillside and into the clouds. And don't forget, he said, I will come back. You know, centuries before he entered earth, it was prophesied where he would be born, the timing of his birth, uh, the nature of his birth, that of being born to a virgin. His life was prophesied. The details of his earthly ministry were laid out. That's what Paul's referring to here in just a few moments when I, when I read it. He, he, he referred to the fact that the law, the, our Old Testament, it was read every Sabbath day among the Hebrews, and yet they, they had the Bible, but they didn't have the wisdom to discern that Jesus was the Messiah. But all of the prophecies about his first coming, every one of them came to pass, all of them. The astronomical odds of those prophecies all being fulfilled in one person is staggering. Someone once said the odds of all of the prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ, the odds are like this. If you filled the state of Texas knee-deep with silver dollars, and you were able, and one of those silver dollars was actually gold-colored, and you flipped it in the middle, all of Texas knee-deep in silver dollars with one of them, being gold colored, and you shook up the state of Texas, the odds of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person are the same odds as you reaching your hand in blindfolded and pulling out that gold coin. That, my friends, is the pinpoint accuracy of prophetic teaching concerning his first coming. Do we expect anything less about the second coming? My friends, he's coming again as he said Number three, scriptural truth. I'm not going to linger long here, but it's important to me that you see that as Paul was promoting the gospel and sharing the gospel, he used his Bible. Look in verse number 32. Paul quotes the Bible here. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus and he quotes the second psalm, first of all. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's a reference from Isaiah 55. And he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. That's from Psalm 16. And then Paul adds this, for David, after he had served the purposes of God for his own generation, he died, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. And this is a little graphic, but he saw corruption, meaning his body went through physical decay. And then verse 37, Paul adds, but he, Jesus, whom God raised up, has never seen corruption. See, Paul was in a synagogue. He would have been among those that were well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures. So Paul didn't want to come in just kind of offhand, didn't want to come in casually, didn't want to seem like some untethered rogue prophet who didn't know his Bible. Paul, and I love this, Dustin prayed this in our furnace prayer room this morning, As much as we hate the taste of religion, let's remember what both Jesus and the apostles did. They didn't abandon and run from a religion. They brought the gospel into the religious realm. When I say religion, I'm talking about man's religion, dead religion, empty religion, religion that focuses on the outward and has no substance. And so Paul went into a religious place, a synagogue in Antioch, and he said, let's open up the Bible we all say we believe. Let's look in the Psalms. Let me quote from Isaiah. And what he's doing is he's showing, because everybody in that synagogue, at least all of the Jews there, would have revered David as the king. And they would have understood the messianic prophecies that from David's lineage, there would come a king who would rule over Israel forever. And what Paul had been telling them is that these prophecies are read every Sabbath day. But in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, they read their Bibles, but they were blind to faith. I believe that disease still goes on today. And yet Jesus pressed into the religious culture. You would find Jesus going to the temple. You would find Jesus sitting down with with, uh, Nicodemus. You would find Jesus talking with scribes and Pharisees. He never agreed with them, but he didn't abandon them. He brought life, the potential of it, to religious settings. And here's Paul doing the same thing. But ultimately... As religion rejected Jesus in Jerusalem, religion would reject Paul in Antioch. We don't have those verses before us today, but through the end of chapter number 13, you're going to find that the people in the synagogue, some were curious, some believed, others said, we're going to hear you at a different date, but some flatly rejected, stirred up the people and ran Paul out of town. Sometimes that's what religious do, uh, religion does. Can, can I say this with, let me just say it. Friend, one of the works that God is doing in this last generation is he is calling those who have a semblance, a form of godliness, not to rest there. He says, It's not enough for you to have an outward form of Christianity, if I can apply it that way. You are denying the power of the gospel. The Bible tells us that that is a blight that will be at the end of the age. It's always been in the church age. But one of the works that God is doing, one of the callings that he has given, is he is shaking up the church, at least the American church. 
He is shaking us up. He is is taking us from our Bible belt withered roots and pulling us out of that dry bed that no longer produces salvation, no longer produces hope, no longer produces life. It just produces slaves of one form or another to man's religion. And he's calling us. He says, lay in my hand. I'll pluck you up from those dead roots and I will plant you fresh and new in the gospel of the kingdom. And friends, it's not the same thing as where we've always been. And so one of the things that I I, I pray, and I know Dustin wants this too, is that as we proclaim the gospel, that we're not simply talking to the person that finds herself in the gutter with a needle in her arm. We're not simply talking to the man who sleeps around constantly trying to find fulfillment. We're not talking about the egomaniac who thinks he's something because of the car he drives or the neighborhood he lives in or the suit that he wears. We're talking to people who have professed with the lips. We're talking to people who've been on church rolls for generations. We're talking to people who've been baptized in many baptisms. We're talking to the church, the visible, professing church, and we're saying what the prophet of old said, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Friend, in our heart of hearts, this is a good time for those of us who have professed Jesus as Lord to consider our ways and don't be afraid to tremble. You see, don't glance at your ways. Maybe 50, 100 years ago, people get away with glancing at their ways. But I'm telling you, I hear the Holy Spirit saying to me all the time, call the people, as you do yourself, Jeff, call the people to deeply consider their lives. What is real? The scriptural truth came forth. And I love the fact that Though Paul believed and practiced and performed signs and wonders, his own testimony is he spoke in tongues more than anybody. He raised the dead. Paul was um, a a miracle-working prophet who received visions, revelations, caught up to the third heaven, saw things that he, he couldn't even articulate or disclose suffered immensely for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But all of those supernatural experiences from the the high of the highs and the low of the lows that Paul went through, none of them ever brought him to the place where he said, I don't need the scriptures anymore. And so what did he do? He quoted his Bible. You see, the the Old Testament forecasts the resurrection. The gospels document the resurrection. The book of Acts imparts the resurrection. The epistles unpack the doctrines of the resurrection. And the book of Revelation shows us the completion of the resurrection. See, friends, from beginning to end, Scripture is saying to us, death is swallowed up in the end by life. So in the midst of circumstantial bleakness, in the midst of sickness and loss and pain, and loneliness, and heartbreak, and deprivation all over the world. When persecution comes to the church, when pain finds us individually, when we feel in our heart of hearts that what is proclaimed in the pulpit and projected from the pages of Scripture is not our experience, that we don't have that victory yet. Friends, I want to tell you that we are pressing in. We are pressing into Jesus. None of us have experienced the fullness that God has for us yet, 
There's a place for that, and it's called paradise. We won't get it all until we get there. But friends, the joy of journeying with Jesus is pressing into him for the more. More of your kingdom, more of your glory, Lord. More of your name, more of your message. More usefulness for you, less of me, Lord. And all throughout it, the scriptures are telling us he's alive. He's alive. He's alive. I want you to remember that in the midst of what you're battling. I looked at little Josiah Rowley, and maybe Mike and Nicole and the family are watching this morning down at uh, Eggleston, down at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, just watching this now week and a half old baby connected to all of the stuff that, that was keeping him going physically, a breathing tube down his throat and the 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 little things on his head connected to wires and all of the machines going off around him. And I just stood with his daddy by his bedside for, uh, we were there about three hours last week and just, just from time to time sitting down, then getting up, we would talk, then we would pray and just looking at this baby and pronouncing over him, live son, live in the name of Jesus, live boy, live, live, live the life of Jesus over you, the life of Jesus in you. Now, he's still in the hospital yet, but I can tell you this. He's not on a breathing machine anymore. He doesn't have all the things connected to him. They're wisely observing him. And I'm watching his mother and his father surrender. And they've got four other children. One of them is Josiah's twin. And they're pressing in. They don't have it all yet. They don't, he's not home yet. But they're pressing in. To whom else will we go, Lord? For only you have the words of eternal life. So when we look at this, we come to the end verse. This transformational truth. Verse 38. As Paul is telling how Jesus raised and never saw corruption, he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, here's the application of everything Paul said. Therefore, know this, that through this man, everybody say Jesus. Jesus. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, say Jesus. Jesus. By him, by Jesus, everyone. Everyone? Everyone? Does that include anyone? Everyone, anyone, everyone who believes is freed from everything. <laughs> yeah, I don't have much of a voice left, but I'd say, whoo, too, if I had it. Let's just hunker down here for a minute. This, I, th I think this has... A very practical impact for believers who are still trying to measure up, who are still, unfortunately, listening more to the enemy's whisper in your mind than you are to God's truth from the Word. And you hear things like, yeah, you really messed up last week. God moved five steps back when you did that. Yeah, that, that, that divorce, that, that failure, that second glance of lust, that that business venture, that pain you caused your loved one. Um, I don't even want to go down a long list of hypothetical sins, but I, I'm going to tell you, I know how the devil accuses. And he hasn't taken a day off from me. The difference is 
He'll never stop whispering accusation to you, but you don't ever have to listen to it. You can't control everything that you hear, but you can control what you listen to. So the enemy comes in and says, you're not free. You're going to be in bondage to this your whole life. You're going to pay for this your whole life. You're going to have the scarlet letter on you your whole life. You're never going to fit in. You're never going to be beloved. You're never going to be accepted. You're never going to measure up. There's somebody ahead of you. They're getting further ahead of you. You better do more. You better try harder. You better, you better clean up more furiously. And, and those whispers of exhausting performance. You see, the enemy hates it when we get saved. He hates it. He hates it. And by the way, he knows who's saved and who's not. He does. He absolutely knows who is saved and who is not. And so when he, he sees those that were once his, place their faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, the devil, he's got a PhD in the gospel. He knows he's got, he actually has better doctrine than, than you and I do. He just won't surrender to it. He actually has way better Bible knowledge than you and I. He's been around the whole time it's been written. He studies it because he uses it against us. He manipulates it. He twists it. And so he's a student of the Bible. And so what happens is, is he starts using that against us. But then when we come to Jesus and we get saved, he hates it. But he doesn't quit. Oh, he knows he can't drag us to hell with him anymore. But he does want to make our life ineffective for Christ. He wants to reduce us to thinking that we have no power. He wants to divorce us from the truth of Scripture that says that greater is the one living in me than the one who is at work in the world. That, that he doesn't want us to believe that we actually can do everything through Christ who brings us strength. He doesn't want us to believe that we're overcomers because the very spirit that raised up Jesus from the grave is the same spirit that inhabits us. He doesn't want us to believe that, so he accuses. And he never wants to give up. And by the way, he gets a lot of help from people in your life to accuse you, doesn't he? Will you make a choice not to listen to them? Because why? What am, why am I saying all of this? Because through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That means you are accepted in the beloved. Let me unpack that. When God the Father looks at the one who has bowed before God the Son... And with the mouth, confession was made unto salvation. With the heart, you believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead. When you surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ and God justifies you, that's a legal term, that those charges can never be brought up against you again. Even our man-made courts, we have a law called double jeopardy. It means when the judge sets you free and you're pardoned, that means they can't bring those charges against you again. God's law is no different. When God pardons you, those charges will not be laid against you again. And so you're clean, you're free, you're accepted, you're complete. So you have to start listening to that voice. Not the voice that said, well, Jeff, but I'm still struggling. Well, listen, I want to tell you something. The Bible acknowledges that there can be a struggle. But that's not identity. That is practicality. That's you working out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not the core of your salvation. Friend, I want to go ahead and tell you something. If your salvation was up to you, you would be lost every 30 minutes. Every five minutes in Gwinnett traffic, amen. The fact of the matter, 
is that he says, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Christian, listen, you may not feel it. I say this, this is the right time for me to say this. I don't give a rip about your feelings right now. You may not feel clean, but you are. You may not feel completely accepted before the Father, but you are. You may not feel lavishly loved on the day after you failed as the day before you failed, but you are. And so I say, with all of the joy in the world, I don't care how you feel in that moment. I'm giving you essential transformational truth that you have to view yourself as God does. And God says, this is my daughter. This is my son. They're as acceptable to me as my only begotten son, Jesus, is because they are in him. These are my kids. And until you begin to believe that, you will probably continue to struggle in those things that the devil accuses you of. But when you retrain yourself to understand, I have victory, I have the the resurrection power of God in me through Christ, I can overcome these things. When you start preaching that gospel to yourself, friend, you will walk differently. And then this, it's not only forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through Jesus, but everyone who believes is freed from everything. That is what we call a comprehensive statement in Scripture. It's exhausted. Everyone free from everything. That doesn't mean we are free to live recklessly and independently and selfishly. That's not the freedom. That's not freedom at all. That's just a different shade of a shackle. We're talking about being free to be the people that God says we are. Worship team, y'all come on up. That is what the resurrection does. And I believe this. I, want, I don't want to wait till I get to heaven to see the full dynamics of what this looks like. I believe that God is offering to this generation of the church before the second coming of Jesus Christ that the Lord is offering us an opportunity to press in, not bringing our baggage with us, our luggage in the sense of all of our religious preferences, but just to come empty-handed. You know, we're told that we, we stand naked and trembling before the one with whom we have to do. That means we just come to him with nothing. And he comes, we come in that state of surrender before a holy God. And he says, I declare you free. I declare you justified. I declare you holy. I declare you lavishly loved. I declare you uh, an, an, an heir with Jesus Christ. I declare that you will rule and you will reign with my son for a thousand years. I declare that you have overcome the wicked one. I declare over your life that by the resurrection power that you will narrowly look upon that one that has frustrated you, every demon that has come against you, every devil that has ever accused you, every pain that has ever tried to entwine you, you will look upon that in the day of victory and you will say, did I really tremble with a world at this that there's coming a time friends where in actuality that we will see everything but until then jesus says walk in it by faith until i give it to you by sight that means we can live that now if we want to if we'll press in if we'll say lord i am not going to pull back i am not going to retreat 
I'm not going to listen to all the Debbie Downers in my life that want to bring me back to the realm of mediocrity, Lord. I know I wasn't made for mediocrity. God, I don't have to be the prettiest. God, I don't have to be the slimmest. God, I don't have to be the wealthiest. God, I don't have to be the purest. God, I don't have to be the one that everybody loves, everybody likes, and always am applauded. I don't have to be that person. But Lord, I want to be genuine before your glorious heart. And so today, I come before you as one who's been raised up from the dead. And I say, Jesus, I'm yours. Take me, Lord. Hallelujah. Would you stand to your feet this morning?